All right, Emo Over Easy listeners, welcome to another episode on Emo Over Easy. We're uh, in our ASAP week, got a bunch of recordings coming up. Drew Kelno here, and I got ditched by my other co-hosts. Andy is still traveling back from Chile, and Tanner had some other obligations. So I'm going solo, which is fine, because we have two awesome guests, Josh and Brian, coming to us from uh, the Buffalo, New York area, talking a little bit about opioid management. And we're not talking about dosing opioids. We're actually talking about addiction and how to manage it because they're doing some cool stuff in their county around Buffalo as to how to help a patient get over their addiction issues and help with that. Similar to something a group in Columbus, Ohio, where I'm based out of is doing. Uh, We have a REACT program where we're able to get uh, ED patients who come in with opioid addiction issues and overdose issues almost immediate help. And it's turned out to be a great thing. We're in year two of a two-year trial. And hopefully this is going to continue because it's actually totally revolutionized our ability to care for these patients. But it sounds like you guys are doing it better. And I want to hear from you what you're doing and why it's so important to emergency medicine. So I'll let you take it from there, introduce yourselves a little better and, and tell us what's going on. So I'm Brian Clemency. I'm an associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of Buffalo. And I mostly work at ECMC, our level one trauma center. I'm Josh Lynch, uh, also on the faculty at the University of Buffalo, and I'm uh, more community-based and work at a variety of our community hospitals that we staff. So I think it's best to understand what we used to do, right? And so like many emergency docs, we had limited options when we had a patient who presented with opiate withdrawal or not in active withdrawal, but who was seeking help for their substance abuse disorder, right? We'd make ourselves feel better by giving them the party pack of Motrin, Clonidine, Zofran, and, you know, kind of wishing them best of luck and then giving them some phone numbers. Everyone has the phone numbers, right? And, and that's not necessarily helpful, right? Many of the patients who have come to us in crisis have tried those things before and, and it's not worked, right? right? And while giving them five prescriptions for different things make us feel really good, like we're doing something inside that's helpful, it's probably not. And, and so we really tried to find a better way, both in terms of treating our patients and ensuring a system of follow-up that would be lasting, um, which is where Josh comes in. Josh has formulated a system that has really changed the way we take care of these patients. Turns out we, it was actually worse than we thought. So we were giving the meds and people really weren't filling them. And we, when we started to fact check ourselves and look through the list of phone numbers we were giving out, we realized that like almost half the numbers didn't even work. Sure. So we kind of felt pretty bad about that. And then really kind of realized like, well, what can we do for people like right away? And we in Buffalo, there's not, there is not a university medical center and there's not a huge kind of umbrella of subspecialty clinics, uh, which we thought would probably be, you know, make things a little bit easier. So instead, we have a couple different competing hospital systems and a whole bunch of competing clinics that we try to kind of figure out how to pull together. So big issue, right? And this has been a huge drain on us in emergency medicine for a long time. And I think everybody, if they're not in the boat that you just talked about, they were in that same boat a couple years ago. I did the same thing. Here's a clonidine patch. Here's a prescription for a couple pills. Sorry you're going through this. If you don't want to go through a draw, just go use again. And here's some resources. And there's a real conversation to have there. Do you want help or do you not want help, right? And, and if you don't want help, that's fine. Let me talk to you about how to use cleanly and safely and protect yourself. And that's one conversation. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about the people that want recovery. They want help. They want to get over it. We were doing nothing for these people. Right. And, and you know, the frustrating thing is when I look back to the way I learned about this as a resident, we always said people die from alcohol withdrawal. People die from benzo withdrawal. And nobody really dies from opiate withdrawal, right? right? That's what we said. And we had these conversations with our patients, too, right? right? Sorry, but this isn't going to kill right. you, right? right. And, 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 and it's true, the chance of dying from opiate withdrawal is infinitesimally small. 
but the chance of overdosing again during this time period Absolutely. is real. Yeah. And, and just as dangerous as alcohol withdrawal, benzo withdrawal, is the, the next heroin overdose, the next opioid overdose. Right. And, and certainly now that fentanyl has become so much more mainstream. I mean, I imagine the Buffalo area is just as bad off as a lot of parts of the country. And in central Ohio, we are on a uh, super highway of opioids coming through and then getting dispersed out to the rest of the country. So this is, this is forefront uh, on, on my mind. So what steps did you guys take to build a program that's actually working or trying to work? So we really did kind of two things. We realized that medication-assisted treatment uh, works, and thanks to uh, Dr. D'Onofrio kind of showing us the way uh, a couple years ago and showing that it, you know this kind of really did work. And so we looked at it from two parts. What do we do in the emergency department while the patient while we have the patient kind of captive there, and then what do we do after? Uh, and so we realized that that getting people trained to to provide access to buprenorphine in the ED would really be kind of be like step one. And so we started to do that and we, we got some funding and we have, we got the support of our chairman, which was a huge help and, uh, started to offer some training courses. I went and got certified as a, uh, the data 2000 waiver trainer. <clears throat> so we could start training some of the ED providers to be able to prescribe when needed. Uh, what we also had to do is start educating the hospital that anybody and everybody could give a dose of buprenorphine in the ED, whether they had the waiver or not. Sure. Right. In, inpatient treatment is fine, right? We, we can get it from pharmacy. You don't need any special training right. to prescribe or to dose one dose, even yeah. two doses. Yeah. It's when you're sending it home with the patient on a, on a longer term issue that becomes, and that's a, I believe a nationwide right. uh, issue. I know Ohio essentially has the same rules that New York did when I was doing some research on this. And not each, not every hospital system has truly embraced that <laughs> sure. as being the rule, right? Um, but that, that is in fact the way it works. And I think most providers haven't embraced that. They go, this is not yeah. a medication I'm going to give. I'm yep. sorry. Right. I don't care if you're due for it today or not. And and we're then perpetuating the problem and making it worse as opposed to making it better. And what is ironic is there are some people who don't give any opiates in their practice and they don't want to give buprenorphine too. And I guess I can intellectually understand that even though I don't agree with it. But when the same provider gives tons of Lortab out or tons of Norco, but then goes, but I'm not giving that other drug, that buprenorphine, that's trouble. I thought you were that- talking about Altram for a minute, which I was totally on board with. Yeah, right, 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 right. So we, so we, so we have about 100, well, uh, 130 providers in our group. We staff seven hospitals. And um, you can break them down into a couple different groups of people that were like, great, this is awesome, and other people that were like, there's no way we're doing this. Thankfully, we've been able to kind of turn some of the naysayers around, and I think even some of those people have kind of started to embrace this too. And, and I think something that's really helpful is that we've really demystified the process, right? So when you talk about buprenorphine induction, we have some really talented counselors who can calculate the number of grams of heroin you take in a day and, <laughs> and, and correlate that to an amount of buprenorphine you need. And, and that is a level of math that I'm that's not a, doing at three in the morning. Buprenorphine savant going on there. Right. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Like I, I, I'm just not going to do it. Right? right. And, and I understand that many EMS, EM providers out there feel like if I have to do long division at three in the morning to figure out not the right happen. dose, not, it's not just happening. not going to happen. And so we've embraced a single four milligram dose. That's the dose we give. And we tell people, when you're in steady state in your treatment, you might get more, you might get less. But we get four milligrams BID, Twice and that's what we do. This is where and, you're starting. And that in and yeah. of itself, I think, has been something that has helped simplify the process. And that was after consultation with multiple addiction specialists, with our clinical excellence committee at the university. And we realized that you know eight milligram dosing once a day is probably enough for, for a lot of people. It shouldn't be too much for anyone. 
Um, and you know, like like Brian said, we realize that that may not be the ideal dose for somebody, but for the first couple of days, it will make their life a lot better, we'll and we'll get them to the clinic. Right. Absolutely. So, Josh, why don't you talk about whether we're prescribing buprenorphine in the emergency department or not? What's the next step? Because that, I think, is what's really special about right. the network. So we started to um, we started to offer some soft trainings to the ER folks, but in parallel to kind of working with some addictions clinics to figure out kind of who would help us out. So we we embraced a couple different uh, couple different groups that would sit down and listen to us. Some of us, some of them didn't want to hear anything we had to say. Uh, now they do, but uh, at first we found three clinics that were willing to kind of offer up a little bit of time uh, based on the day of the week that you presented to the to the ED. Okay. So now, kind of fast forward about a year, and so we went from three clinics. And now we have twenty seven different clinics across four different counties, and um, so basically what we did to, with them was kind of come out with a set of mission, vision, and value statements. They're really rules and regulations. Don't tell anybody. Um, but we, well, we wanted to make sure that, that the clinics but they, understood. But they feel better, right? Yeah, they feel they're, more, they're we values, feel better. About, values, yeah, yeah. Right. Not rules. Right. They look like rules. Um, <laughs> so we, so I'm going to use that. A couple Just of the that. obstacles that we, came o- that we had to get over was some of the clinics, like their, their hesitation to participate was um, these, pe- these patients oftentimes don't keep their appointments. And... Um, they they may be poly substance abusers, which most of them are. We, in our opinion, is the the benzo and opioid abusers are the highest risk, and they should be seen the quickest. Sure. Uh, and so we worked kind of worked through that and got all the clinics to kind of to agree to the same values, and uh, what kind of networked with each one and and developed kind of really a network of about sixty four appointments a week that were that were set aside uh, for the patients coming from our thirteen hospitals. So you guys have also done something unique, which we haven't done in Columbus yet, and I'm really interested about, is you set up, what, your EMS dispatchers or yeah. lifelight dispatchers yeah. to kind of take the the burden of setting the schedule up. Right. Is so when we, when we started this, we didn't have any money, uh, and uh, but we, we kind of knew had a lot of connections. So we went, to, um, we went to a group that we thought would be really excited about doing this for us, and they told us um, no. So So we ended up kind of like at the last minute trying to scramble to see who could, who could help us. And we were both EMS guys and, uh, you know, thought to ourselves, man, there's like the dispatchers are, are multitaskers. They can, sure. they're good at, at dealing with kind of, you know, critical things at, at all at the same time. And we kind of approached one of the nonprofit air and critical care transport companies and said, you know, what do you think about fielding a couple of phone calls? It, it could be zero to two calls a day is what we kind of baited them with. Hitched. Uh, it worked. And so they offered to do it for a year for free. And basically, they um, they access a, a HIPAA compliant da- online database, cloud ba- cl- cloud based database that houses all the clinic appointments for the di- the twenty seven different clinics. Okay. Uh, the problem is we couldn't do it through the university. We couldn't do it through one of the hospital systems because not everybody was part of those systems. There's so many ar- around Buffalo, so we had to do it in like total neutral third party, which sure. worked out actually very well. So I have a patient who I want to put through the network. There's a one-sheet uh, piece of paper that I ask them to fill out some information with their phone numbers on it and whatnot and a list of clinics, and I ask them to circle their first, second-choice clinic and what day they're available, like can you go tomorrow or the next day. I then call the phone number. I essentially read them the information on the sheet they entered in, and they tell me if the appointment's available or if we need to pick a different one. And you're using a resource that's already available 24 hours a day right. Yep. that isn't because it's a private uh, EMS agency, life flight agency. They're not overburdened maybe with 911 calls, so they have the capacity to yep. handle that, which is really a brilliant way of doing it. It yeah. is easier for me to do this than it is for me to admit a patient to my hospital. 
It's and, very and right. And so a big part of this is reducing barriers Absolutely. to physician usage, right? A single dose. Uh, Everybody dose gets scheme. the same dose. There's a, no calculation. A, a, a single plan of we're doing it for seven days. We are trying to get someone in. We're calling a number. We're filling out a single sheet. The more we can streamline this process. And, and, and what Josh was saying was key about each of the receiving hosp- receiving clinics need to be able to accept patients based on a single set of rules, right? Sure. I can't have our provider at 3 in the morning being like, oh, well, they want to go to this clinic, and this clinic will take you if you have this, this insurance, insurance or, but you're right. not using benzos, and you have blonde <laughs> hair, and you shower, right? Yeah. And the has, other has place, even the other place is when we place it in the guys who don't shower too. No. Everybody takes everybody. You know, the, right? other big, the other big obstacle to get over was we also can't figure out if this patient was fired from the clinic. Uh, a week ago. So the part of the agreement, kind of the onboarding of the clinics was you have to take them with all their baggage. And if they show up on your scheduler and they want to come to you and you fired them a week ago, you got to see them again. And that was a hard hard pill to swallow for some, some of the clinics. Now they've all, they've all agreed. Uh, and, and, and I will tell you that when the patients see the list and they see a list of 27 different office locations and they're told that they get to pick, Oftentimes, some of them get a little overwhelmed. Like, man, I, I can't believe that this this organization would actually see me. Uh, and this and, and well. these patients are not used to being in the driver's seat, right? right. The, the, our patients, unfortunately, have often had the healthcare system turn their back on them. They often have providers tell them how it's going to be. And so when you give them the little bit of flexibility of asking, what place works for you? Based sure. on you know what's near your home, what's what day of the week works on your schedule. Even giving them a little bit of flexibility, a little bit of control, definitely makes a difference. Oh, yeah. well, I mean, you're empowering the patients to take control of their situation, but also empowering the providers to actually help a situation that previously we really had no good offer yeah. for. Right. So along those lines, what has been now that you're you're into this experience uh, a little bit? What has been the provider reaction to this? Do you think the ED environment's better? Is there buy-in, and has it really improved? provider experience when dealing with the the opioid related patient you know you know we know from the literature that many providers you know have an internal groan when they walk into a room with a patient suffering from uh, opiate use disorder and it's not fair but it's the reality and and we are turning what have traditionally been really negative interactions from both the provider and the patient side into a very very positive one we've given the provider the tools to help the patient in a real meaningful way. And and so I think at the end of the interaction, I think both the provider and the patient are, are, are feeling good about it. And that, I think, helps you as the provider get through your shift. Right. It's right. one less thing in the burnout train yeah. that we ride on. And, and we're actually doing good, which is uh, refreshing in the emergency department setting. Because so often we have frustrating patient experiences, particularly when we're talking about um, social issues, opioid dependence yeah. issues, alcohol dependence issues that become very frustrating patients. So Guys, I thank you so much for, for sharing this. I know uh, we have a busy ASAP schedule ahead of us, and, and I'm watching your phones all go off on alerts that uh, the, next, <laughs> the next conference uh, uh, speaker that you want to get to is coming up. So, so Brian, Josh, this is uh, hopefully this is the first part of the conversation. Maybe we can do some remote yeah, episodes uh, coming yeah. up later about how you're progressing uh, and learn from what you guys are doing in Buffalo and hopefully spread it out to the rest of the country. I know this topic's come up, so hopefully we're gaining some steam and some momentum in the proper treatment of opioid dependence. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks for having us. Thanks.